Section 8 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2 Scotland, Exile, and Restoration. Part 1 by aberdeen where he looked from his lodging upon the tolbooth on which was nailed the accusing hand of the dismembered montrose and by st andrews where mr rutherford preached to him on the theme octum est de rege et re regia charles was escorted to the royal residence of falkland here he was made aware of the intentions of the kirk rendered more bitter than before by the discovery of his offers to the pope of his household buckingham wilmot and dr fraser all of whom had acquired favour during the negotiations at the hague with henry seymour and rhodes were alone allowed to remain immediately about his person the engagers had already been dismissed until they should be reconciled to an offended kirk a letter from the king to hamilton on july seventeenth expresses his sense of the rigidness and cruelty of this kirk and state toward his friends and his powerlessness to assist them vague hopes of help from the prince of orange gave charles patience for a while there was moreover ample discontent in england and he trusted by hoodwinking the presbyterians and by promising to the catholics the repeal of the penal laws to secure a union between both of them and the old cavalier party but meanwhile it was in scotland itself that the first blow was to be struck on july twenty second cromwell crossed the border and fighting took place around edinburgh before the end of the month the invasion was met by an army weak from its first purging of engagers and malignants its best soldiers for the present it was not a national conflict but an ecclesiastical it was not scotland fighting an invader but the covenanter fighting the sectary even so it was in the army that charles hoped to find freedom the natural antipathy between sword and gown led to an invitation from the officers to visit the quarters at leith and when he rode into the camp on july twenty seventh he was received by the soldiers with enthusiasm while numbers of those dismissed by the purging came in to add their greetings the vigilance of the kirk was aroused at once the next day charles wrote to hamilton the commissioners of the kirk desired me to retire out of the army pretending it was for the safety of my person but indeed it was for fear i should get too great an interest with the soldiers he was informed that if he did not at once comply the committee would not act nor the ministers pray for the army charles was therefore forced to retire to dunfermline where he reported himself narrowly watched by the serious christians a fresh purging was put in force and so far did the insanity go that with cromwell at their gates no fewer than eighty officers and three thousand soldiers were dismissed it is difficult after this lapse of time to realize the intensity of the conviction that inspired the dominant kirk to her malignancy was a sin against the holy ghost it was better for her to fight her enemies with a handful of godly and elect people than with mighty arms loaden with that sin and so instead of these experienced soldiers there were placed in command 
ministers' sons, clerks, and other such sanctified creatures, who hardly ever saw or heard of any other sword than that of the spirit. While, had it been thought lawful to have suffered the king and all gentlemen, even excepting those accepted by name and the two first classes, to have stayed, the Isle of Britain saw not such an army these hundred years. Charles was as yet only at the beginning of his troubles. To justify themselves for maintaining the cause of a king, who by his mere existence represented all the sins of malignancy, and in whose name papists were in arms in Ireland, the assembly called upon him to sign a declaration in which he was to bewail the sins of his father and mother, and upon his refusal declared that they fought merely upon their former grounds and principles, and that they would not own the king nor his interest, otherwise than so far as he owns and prosecutes the cause of God, and disclaims his and his father's opposition to the work of God and to the covenant. Charles realized that if the army, his only hope, were to be held together, he must once more give way. Covering his retreat by a request that the assembly would first send some of their number to satisfy him on points of conscience, he signed the declaration on August 16th. This was a very slight strain upon the faculty for dissimulation which the Kirk was fostering. On the part of the Kirk itself, the whole proceeding was a monumental piece of folly. Now, and in all their subsequent actions, the severer covenanters made it clear that they knew the impossibility of trusting him, and that, sore with that knowledge, they were determined to drag him through every humiliation which the ingenuity of bigotry could suggest. It was something they felt to degrade him in his own eyes by forcing him to use language which it was not credible that he could seriously mean. Austere men who would have died sooner than deny their own faith were willing that their prince should stand before them steeped in falsehood. They little guessed that there were covenanters yet unborn who would perish in loathsome prisons when Roths and Sharp should misrule the land, and on many a hillside by the carbines of Claverhouse's troopers and under the ruthless chase of Greer of Lag, because in their grim fanaticism, their fathers had caused the very name of the covenant to be abhorred by their king. Charles then submitted to declare himself desirous of being humbled and afflicted because of his father's hearkening unto evil counsels and because of his mother's idolatry. He bewailed the sins of his father's house and all his own guiltiness he avowed that he had not sworn to the covenants and entered into the oath of god with his people upon any sinister intention and crooked design for attaining his own ends that he would prosecute to the utmost of his power all the ends thereof that he would have no enemies but the enemies of the covenant that he would not tolerate any popery or prelacy or error but would endeavour their extirpation the exceeding sinfulness and unlawfulness of that treaty and peace with the bloody Irish rebels was duly emphasized, and Charles bound himself to establish Presbyterianism in England. It will always be a mystery, except on the grounds we have stated a few lines back, how sane men could have imagined that such documents were worth the paper they covered. 
In a private letter written shortly afterwards to Lord Beecham, Charles describes the declaration as forced upon him, and therefore utterly meaningless. While Ormond was told in his name that he was constant as ever to the Irish peace, which it condemned. But the Kirk was not satisfied yet. Since Charles desired to be humbled, he should have his wish. A day was decreed by the assembly on which the king and his house and the whole land should keep a solemn public humiliation for the sins of the royal family and his own, all of which were lamented under twelve heads. And then they purged the army once more. No officers were for the future to entertain malignants or engagers, even to drink or converse with them, on pain of being cashiered. This was on September 1st, when Cromwell's position at Dunbar appeared desperate. The insensate bigotry now bore its legitimate fruit. Two days later, the emasculated army was crushed beyond hope by a leader who knew how to unite in his men religious fervor with iron discipline and military skill. To Charles himself the disaster was very welcome for his desire to escape from persecution was greater than that of seeing Cromwell beaten, though his habits were not so devotional as to warrant the belief that he fell on his knees and thanked God that he was so fairly rid of his enemies. He remembered himself in time to assure Argyle, who brought him the news, that in spite of the disaster he would be constant in his loyalty to the covenant, and in his letter to the Committee of Estates, he showed how perfectly he had caught the style of his persecutors. We cannot but acknowledge that the stroke in trial is very hard to be borne, and would be impossible for us and you in human strength, but in the Lord's we are bold and confident. Our ancestors had only the honor and civil liberties of the land to defend, but we have with you religion, the gospel, and the covenant, against which hell shall not prevail, much less a number of sectaries stirred up by it. We shall strive to be humbled, that the Lord may be appeased, and that he may return to the thousands of his people. To the Kirk, the defeat at Dunbar meant a fiercer fire of covenanting zeal, the need for more prayer, more purging, more preaching, and more harassment for Charles. It was enough to account for the evil days which God had permitted to fall upon his elect, that a most malignant and profane guard of horse had been allowed to remain about the king's person. A fast was proclaimed, and on the Sunday following the battle a sermon was preached before Charles at Stirling, in which it was declared that if his majesty's heart were as upright as David's, God would no more pardon the sins of his father's house than he did the sins of the house of Judah for the goodness of holy Josiah. The extreme fanatics of the western counties were formed into a separate command. The fourteen causes of solemn public humiliation to be kept throughout all the congregations of Scotland were drawn up by the assembly. A fresh declaration was issued in which once more Charles was urged to repent of his own sins and the sins of his father's house, the nobles to look to their steps, the officers not to think lightly of the ministers, and the ministers to show no backsliding, while neither with sectaries nor malignants was there to be any compromise. 
the king was now subjected to every form of personal annoyance at the council at which he nominally presided he was forced to remain silent while johnston of Wariston, laying up a debt which was cleared many years later on the scaffold at the cross of edinburgh poured forth the bitterest denunciations of himself and his father his household was once more sifted he was allowed as little knowledge of the business transacted as he had been in his mother's court three years before he was indeed outwardly served and waited on with all fitting ceremony due to a king but in his liberty not much above a prisoner sentinels being set every night about the lodging few daring to speak freely or privately to him and spies set on his words and actions his very bedchamber was not free to himself the ministers almost daily thrusting in upon him to catechise and instruct him and i believe to exact repetitions from him john livingstone who had preached to him and cassillis on board ship was sorely exercised at being hindered one day from improving the occasion just when he had got his mouth opened in ain reasonable long discourse the poor king who had nothing of it but the name thus his condition was summed up by an onlooker and he himself wrote in bitterness of heart of his masters assuredly the lad paid a high price for his grinning honour he wrought himself says burnet into as grave a deportment as he could he heard many prayers and sermons some of great length i remember in one day there were six sermons preached without intermission i was there myself and not a little weary of so tedious a service a sunday walk was out of the question dancing and playing at cards were visited with severe reproof End of section eight